Welcome to a series of podcasts for the Oxford Strategic Leadership Programme. I'm Tracy Camilleri. In the tradition of the OSLP, we'll explore leadership through multiple lenses, looking at culture, creativity, language and power, lateral thinking, change and the challenges facing women leaders. Against a global backdrop of so much strain and pressure, we hope to bring you a reason for some time out for reflection. My guest today is Catherine Bishop. She's the Programme Director of Oxford University's first Women's Leadership Programme. She's the chair of the Welsh Tax Authority and has taught strategy at Oxford Said for 20 years or so. Excitingly, this month, she's brought out a book, Make Your Own Map, that provides a highly practical set of strategy tools for women planning their careers. Welcome, Catherine. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Good. Catherine, can I begin with you? I mean, I'm conscious I've known you for many years, actually, that you and I had very different trajectories. Most of your development was in single sex education. And here you are directing a women's leadership program. And my trajectory has been quite different. And and my leadership program at Oxford is a mixed one. And, and I kind of feel on the outside of things. And I wonder, what's it like to spend an intense week with a group of powerful, interesting women? What's different about it? What do you notice about whether it's the atmosphere or the topics that you range over. Give me a little bit of an inside take on what it's like. As you'd expect from any uh, executive development at a, um, a business school, the topics that we cover on the Women's Leadership Programme are actually very similar to the ones which we would cover on uh, any programme. And uh, Tracy, you and I have had conversations about the different design imperatives that we've taken. Um, the women's leadership programs tend to start with a focus on you yourself uh, and in particular your strengths. And that grounds the program. And then from there, we move out to think about the challenges you may be facing in your organisation or in your context and how you might best rise to those. So the trajectory is from individual out to global. And I think in many of the other programmes, uh, the one you lead, uh, and indeed other programmes that I have designed or developed uh, with clients, we sometimes do the same trajectory, but in reverse. We would start with uh, global scale problems and then in the course of the week's conversations, come back to a focus on the individual. So that design difference, I think, is quite striking. Faculty say when they have taught on the programme that the conversations in a room full of women leaders are strikingly different in the speed at which they get down to a very deep level and the breadth of the responses. If, if they're teaching a case study, they will comment on how quickly the conversation spans a very wide range of responses. And of course, partly that's because we try to create a relaxed and safe space for women to interact, as we do on all our programmes, as you do on yours. That's fascinating to me. I mean, that idea of your faculty are saying that women respond much more much more quickly, much that's much more pacey because it feels safe, which of course implies that in other kinds of environments there's less there's less of a feeling of safety. I mean, does that sound right to you? Can I interpret that differently? Some years ago, 
somebody I was working with, uh, a woman leader, said to me over dinner one evening, she said, of course, you realise I'm bilingual. And I blinked and said, oh, right. She said, yes, yes, woman is my first language, but I also speak man. Uh, I have to speak it between seven in the morning and seven in the evening. And I'm I'm pretty fluent. I'm pretty good. But it's lovely to come and do some development in my first language. Now, that's clearly a metaphor, but there's something in there about the particular kinds of conversation that can happen in a space where everybody speaks, as it were, the same language. Yeah, that's fascinating because there's a lot that we read all the time about how Women's voice, voices just simply aren't heard. There's a great line at the beginning of Rilke's Duino Elegy that says, who if I cried out would hear me amongst the angels? And that line actually is quoted by Rebecca Solnit in her book about women, um, the mother of all questions. And she uses that to reflect on why women's voices aren't heard. And obviously there's some really literal reasons, you know, our voices are softer. As you say, our speech patterns are different sometimes, but there are there are often psychological, structural reasons as well why women's voices find it difficult to be heard. I mean, do you have any wisdom from your long work with, with women on that score, Catherine? I've been quite influenced by Deborah Tannen's work at Harvard, where she talks about, amongst other things, the different purposes that women use conversation for an aim to create symmetry and connection primarily, whereas perhaps uh, her research indicates that uh, men from a very early age are interested in creating asymmetry, uh, a difference in the conversation. And I think the awareness of that, the understanding that what's going on may be slightly subtly different is a key first step in helping us all to be heard more clearly, to be able to read what's going on and see more clearly the differences and how to engage uh, through those differences while still being authentic. I found that helpful. And when I've talked about it with other women, they've indicated that they have too. I mean, Catherine, we talk about men do this, women do this, speak in different sorts of ways. And I remember, again, a conversation we had a long time ago, and both of us feeling that that <laughs> you know, that, that kind of binary opposition was totally inadequate, but that, you know, sort of us both feeling that there was a continuum of the feminine and the masculine that, that sort of roughly maps onto sex differences, but not always. If that is right, and, and you know, to, to test whether you still believe that, what do we mean by more feminine capabilities when it comes to leadership? I think the idea of a spectrum of leadership styles is absolutely still right. It's moved more and more central, uh, become more and more central in my thinking about leadership. Indeed, Women Transforming Leadership, the very title is about giving women the opportunity to expand their repertoire of, of leadership styles, not inauthentically, but to broaden out from the default things that we all do. And when we're talking about a range of leadership styles, we increasingly try to talk psychologically, not biologically, to recognise that there are different psychometric preferences that cause us to feel easier in leading in, in some ways than others. But that because they are preferences, we can still authentically 
overcome them and learn to lead perhaps in slightly different ways that suit the challenge that you're facing better. At the beginning of uh, the programmes, we put up a graphic that comes from those early conversations that you and I had, Tracy, which tries to depict crudely a whole range of taxonomies of leadership styles, servant leadership, the innovative leader, the empathetic, the leader as coach, um, the action-oriented leader, whatever it might be, and to try to illustrate that all of those are possible and in different circumstances, all of them are useful. And what I'm particularly interested in right now, right at the moment, is that there seems to be a little more room for us to start to think differently about leadership styles and which leadership approaches might work because of the unique situation we've all been through. I wish we could find a different word other than feminine or masculine. I really wish there were some um, blander, newer words that we could use. But I think this notion of preferences and styles uh, is still very important and becoming more so. I'd like to pick it up on this moment now, this moment of great uncertainty and and particularly, you know, it's really particularly affected women. I mean, if you look at job losses and so on and connect that to some of the practical wisdom in your book. I mean, what I love about it is it's pragmatic invitation and optimism that women can have agency over their lives that can design a sort of a path that they can put some shape into articulating what it is that they want. Do you think that, you know, that idea of being able to map things can be useful even in such a time as this, such a time of, of uncertainty? I do think it's important. I think for all of us, whether employed or self-employed, what lies ahead in the next few months, the next 12 months, are a series of choices, even if it's only as simple as how many days a week do I want to go into the office? I think there will be opportunities to do different kinds of work because there is a widespread recognition that I don't need to be physically present, at least not every day. I think there are industries that will uh, have been suffering and will still suffer so that there may be a necessity to move. And in all those choices, in thinking about the options, it's helpful to have a compass, a sense of purpose, a sense of where you're trying to get to. One of my favourite quotations about careers is, careers are like crazy paving and you have to lay the <laughs> stones yourself. And that's a very vivid image and it underlines the importance of knowing where you're trying to get to. Sure, you need to know what size stones you have and how you're going to make them fit together. The, the normal sense of self-awareness that we all need to uh, develop and attend to. But you must have a sense of direction and that makes it easier to lay your crazy paving path, to make a map uh, using the abilities and skills that you have. I like the crazy paving rather than a, a neatly tarmacked road. <laughs> but if we just stay on this for a little bit and, and your point about the difference between the psychological and the biological, uh, my experience always of, you know, when I'm coaching young women or aspiring, particularly female leaders, but again, this may not just be a female thing, but I always want to say, you've got more power than you think you have, you know, push the door. It's ajar. And yes, maybe this is a female thing. There's something, some sort of reticence to 
to reach forward and take hold of the crown. I mean, do you do you experience that in your work with women leaders? And what is it? I absolutely experience precisely that. Times in my career, I've experienced that feeling myself. And I think there are probably two things I would say. One of them is about power. We have, I think, sometimes the wrong conception about power. We think if we're in any form of um, interview or negotiation that there's only so much power in the room. And if you have it, then I have less. But power is not a pie. There's plenty of power around. And if you have lots, there's no reason why I can't have a sense that I also have lots too. I, th- I think this sense of agency, of the ability and indeed the necessity to manage myself uh, is very important. I think we might also touch on imposter syndrome and remember that is not something exclusively felt by women. There is some evidence that suggests that up to 40% of the population experience some sense of being an, an imposter. What's interesting, of course, is what we do with that sense, that you have the option simply to ignore it and press on, or you can let it sit on your shoulder and uh, constrain you uh, in the choices you make and, and the way you lead. I always like to think of imposter syndrome as fuel. For me, over the years, it's been the thing that makes me really prepare. It makes me come into a meeting actually having thought about the agenda and who's going to be there and how it's going to go. And Uh, using it as fuel, I think, for me, has been more helpful than thinking to myself, oh, goodness, I shouldn't really be experiencing imposter syndrome, because I think so many of us do. (laughs) Yeah, gosh, tell me about it. Well, that's a very positive way to think about it. And yeah, not to let it turn you back, I suppose, from those moments. And actually, let's focus on you, Catherine, because from the outside, I've always felt you stepped into your leadership roles very calmly. Uh, you know, you're chair of the tax authority, you've got lots of lots of different leadership roles. And, you know, to be if we really drill down into how you felt about those moments of transition of stepping into those roles. I mean, what surprised you about the experience of doing just that? And also, how people have experienced you, if we can get a bit personal here. A long time ago, I worked with a coach. And I was dealing with a particularly set of difficult circumstances in a job at the time. And the thing that I learned from a piece of work that I did with her was, for me, the the importance of focusing on the problem and on the followers. Stepping into a situation as a servant leader where my job is to get the obstacles off the runway so that the organisation and the people in it can flourish uh, and, and take off. And for me, that's been very helpful because it helps distract myself from those questions. Ooh, am I doing this right? Ooh, am I doing a good job? I try to focus much more on the problem and the reaction and getting people involved in solving it. And I suspect, although I don't know, that your second question about how people experience me as a leader is a function of that, that I am visibly less interested in myself and more interested in them and more focused on the problem. 
I've been very influenced by some Oxford research about gynandrous leadership, this notion that one doesn't have to display um, stereotypical um, male characteristics of leadership, that one can lead in, in a way that blends the best of yourself and is appropriate to uh, the situation and the problem you're trying to solve. And that's what I really try to do. I like to think that people don't experience me as a woman leader. They experience me as a leader. <laughs> and yeah, you've got great jewellery as well, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'm just thinking back on your book, and it's got a hopeful heart to it, hasn't it? I think it's is it chapter five. I can't remember the exact chapters, but you, you really explore the Japanese ikigai model, which is, you know, such a hopeful one. It's, it has as its premise the idea that there is really a sweet spot that you could find where, you know, purpose, home, personal development, remuneration, job satisfaction are all aligned in that wonderful place. You know, it's a kind of have your cake and eat it sort of model. And, you know, back to the what we're going through now, where so many women are absolutely buffeted by, by forces beyond their control. Is that just a pipe dream? I mean, help us to understand... You know, how could we get closer to that to that sweet spot? I think the dream is worth having, but building it into the reality of your life could be done in various ways. I'm careful to say in that chapter that it isn't the case that you have to find the perfect job that meets all your needs personally, socially, economically, and in terms of uh, purpose and contribution to the world. But it's useful to think of your life in different phases as a portfolio of activities which together should be meeting that collection of ideal outcomes. There'll be certain phases of your life where perhaps early on in your first job or your first or second job, there is a focus on work and a developing understanding of how work can meet those needs. So, so maybe maybe the first job, very unlikely to be perfect. When you have caring responsibilities, perhaps in the middle of your life, it will almost be impossible for you to sustain um, the things that your family and community need from you and the perfect high-powered job too. The thing to remember is that women's lives in particular go through phases and there may be a phase where you can simply tolerate the fact that you're good at your job. It's not that interesting, but it allows you to sustain your family and your voluntary role outside. And that's a perfectly legitimate set of strategic decision to make about this phase of your life right now. But recognise that later on in life, in a different phase, you might want, might want to revisit that and redesign and restructure your life accordingly. So the knowing, I think, is important. The knowing what those four uh, dimensions mean to you is important. Um, the doing depends on the phase. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things I loved about your book was it's full of stories of women's lives, re real women's lives, of their struggles and, and triumphs and uh, at work. And I wondered when I read it whether there was a particular story that had been foundational for you, Catherine, and, and, and perhaps had been the spark that had inspired you to write the book. 
I wrote the book because I needed to read a book like that when I was facing the last time I was facing questions. What shall I do next? How am I going to make this work? I scrabbled around looking for a book and couldn't find it. So that's why I wrote it. But it also brought into sharp relief the various stories of women I've worked with, not just in lecture theatres, but actually outside in cafes and craft afternoons and uh, talking to people at women at weddings. So all the stories, I think, underlined to me the transition difficulties, the, the sense of shifting priorities and roles that propelled me uh, to write the book. If there was one story that changed the way I wrote it, it's one of the early stories where I was working with quite a distinguished academic in her mid-30s who did the journey map exercise, uh, which occurs early in the book. And she said to me afterwards, I have never considered myself successful. I, I have won awards and won grants and so forth, but I have never considered myself as a successful academic. And doing this exercise has helped me realise why. Because every time I've won something at work and been ready to take pleasure in that, something sad or tragic or difficult has happened in my life outside. And so I've never been able to relax into the joy of the success. That's been such a useful insight for me, she said. It was useful for me too, because it helped me understand that although this book is about your working life, it must also acknowledge the home and private life that can make such a difference to the way we feel. Yeah, interesting. And I was thinking as you're talking, of course, you and I have had the great privilege of spending a lot of time, you know, in Oxford. But these stories of women and their struggles must change across the world in different sorts of places where the struggles are quite different. I mean, do you have a a sense of of that? And do you do you have any thoughts thoughts about that? One of the things the participants on the residential women's leadership program find rather startling is that although they come from all over the world, from very different contexts, manufacturing, public sector, financial sector, whatever it may be, although their age range spans early 30s to late 50s and, and beyond, there is a degree of similarity in the various challenges that they face, and they find that an enormously rich source of conversation and learning. Sure, there are differences, though. The cultural social and economic contexts do make things different. But if you ask them about whether they are more struck by the differences or the similarities, they always say it is the similarities that strike them most. Having said that, though, there was one very interesting conversation two or three years ago, which I'm still brooding on. And once again, we were talking about imposter syndrome. And it was a conversation with one of our participants from India, and she said, quite confidently, she said, oh, many Indian women who work don't experience imposter syndrome because we have had to struggle so hard to get an education and to find meaningful work that we simply don't have time for any sense of being an imposter. And I thought that was so interesting. It's something <laughs> I continue to explore in conversation when I have the opportunity. Yeah, really interesting. One last question to end with a, a sort of a green shoot 
just to capitalize on all all the many years you've spent working with brilliant aspiring women but for those listening to this podcast who may still be struggling or don't have a clear sense of of direction or or feel like they're being thwarted if they could take a small first step towards finding you know a path that works for them what would your counsel be i think i would say two things if i may the first is this idea of phases recognize that for all of us at the moment this is a very complex and difficult and wearisome phase but it won't last forever For many of us, there are phases where we simply feel we're not making sufficient progress or we can't find the kind of work uh, we're looking for because perhaps of other responsibilities. That's a phase and it will come to an end. Get ready for the next phase if you can. Watch for it arising. And then if I may, I always like to end with a very tiny, practical thing that you could do today. Like you, Tracy, I've been on many development programs where we come away with five or six actions and you look at them and you think, how on earth am I going to build those into my busy day? Here's one tiny little thing you could do. I have what I call a to not do list. I have a list of things that I just won't do. I haven't got time. They're not important. Ironing, Christmas cards, for example. But The reason that this is particularly relevant now is that as we look ahead to the next normal that we're all going to build, you may want to start to build a list of things that you're not going to do when things return to uh, that next normal. For example, I'm not going to have long meetings. I'm not going to arrange them and I'm not really going to participate in them. I'm not going to uh, engage in presentism. Because I think we'll be living in a hybrid world. I'm going to try to make sure that we acknowledge the contribution of those people who are in the room, as well as those people who are contributing virtually. So there's just two examples of the to not do list that I'm developing for uh, the next few months. Ah, Catherine, how joyful to end with a not to do list rather than to do list. uh, As I look down at the list of things I've got to do today on my desk. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And thank you also for listening. We will put a link to Catherine's book, Make Your Map, in the text uh, accompanying this podcast and also to her leadership programme, Women's Transforming Leadership. And I hope that you will join us next month for our next podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Do follow up with any links in the accompanying email And please do let us have any comments or further thoughts you may have as a result of listening. Stay safe and remember to recommend the programme to anyone you think will enjoy it. We're back live in November 2021. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.